Welcome to this Sunday's message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, the city of our God, the holy place, the joy of the whole earth. That's how Psalm 48 begins. And those are the first words that I heard as I came up out of the water of baptism over at Martlett's Hall many years ago. The way it was run in those days was you did a personal testimony, then you were dunked into the baptism pool, and then you came up to a song of your choice. And because I was a relatively new Christian and only knew about six or seven, that was the song of my choice. But I didn't realise at the time the impact of those words, because we serve a great God. And I want to speak today in the series about God is great, and I'm going to weave into that, that God is majestic as well. I heard someone say recently, I think it might have been in our last series, that the history of the church has never been about great men and women of God. It's always been about the great God of men and women. And I'm going to be reading today from Isaiah chapter 40, one of my favourite chapters. I remember even as being baptised, I was given the verses right at the end of this particular chapter. It's a fantastic chapter. I can't read the whole chapter. We don't have time. But I'm going to read some selected verses, and then I'm going to make a few points. You'll be glad to know, because we're not all going home early. And as I make those points, hopefully the verses will then come up on the uh, big screen behind me. So, from verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Andrew Wilson, in his book, Incomparable, it's a great book, he says that we need to be slapped in the face with the greatness of Yahweh. Human problems, my golly, there's a few of those, will never be solved by economics or politics or science or self-help, but only by a renewed understanding of the wonder and the glory and the majesty of Almighty God. Andrew goes on to say, amen. Andrew goes on to say how we need Isaiah chapter 40 because it presents a God so great that our response to him can only be worship and amazement. In this passage, Isaiah employs a technique that deliberately presents a series of rhetorical questions which are designed to bring out the sheer bigness of God. He does this by taking massive earthly things that all of us can relate to, things like the seas and the skies and the mountains and the islands, and then he makes them all seem ridiculously small in comparison to the greatness of God. So we're going to look at four of those comparisons this morning, and then hopefully I'm going to draw a few conclusions off the back of that. So comparison number one I've called, so just how big is the hand of God? 
And I'm not talking about that dubious goal from the 1986 <laughs> World Cup finals, because when, <laughs> we still haven't got over it as a nation. We need to move on. But uh, um, uh, um, when you Google it, that normally comes quite near the top. Now, something a bit more serious here, folks. So who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand has marked off the heavens, he says in verse 12. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? If you cup your hand like that, make it into a hollow, we reckon that you could probably hold about 100 millilitres of water in it. Not very much, maybe just enough to have a gulp on a thirsty morning like this morning. So just how big would you need to be to hold all the world's waters in the hollow of your hands? Let's think about that just a little bit. Let's take the accumulation of water from thunderstorms. There are, I was quite surprised, about 45,000 of these every day on planet Earth, where each thundercloud in each thunderstorm contains on average 100,000 tonnes of water. Consider then the oceans of the world. They contain, a little bit more than that, 328 million cubic miles of water. If you add those two together, you still haven't come up with your number because you've got to take into account the world's great lakes and all the rest of them, the rivers, all the inland waterways which we like to take our holidays on from time to time. If you take account of all that, then uh, Isaiah says that God simply measures that in the hollow of his hand. Wow. <laughs> now indeed, instead of cupping your hand, now stretch it out to form a hand span. And this is probably the next picture that Isaiah is painting for us. Your hand span might be a little bit bigger than mine, but it's not going to be much more probably than the size of a banana. And you know that Isaiah says with the breadth of his hand, God marks off the heavens. If we thought there was a lot of water to measure, you try containing the heavens. They're incomparably greater. Imagine, for example, the distance from planet Earth to our sun, about 93 million miles. If this was represented by the thickness of this single piece of paper, then to get from Earth to the nearest star would take a stack of paper 22 metres high. Wow. And that's just one of many stars in the universe. And that, by the way, is a massive understatement. I'm going to come back to the stars a little bit later on. Then Isaiah tells us that God encloses the dust of the earth in a basket and weighs the mountains on the scales. He must have a huge, huge set of measuring scales. Let's have a look at comparison number two then. Having moved on from the hand of God, and I'm going to come back to the hand of God later, let's compare now the greatness of God with, with the nations of the world. A bit of background for what I do. I've been working uh, for the UK Civil Aviation Authority since 1987. I don't know whether you knew this, but the UK has the third, or had the third largest aviation industry in the world behind the US and China. Just after the pandemic, we dropped down to fourth as India emerged up as the third largest uh, aviation industry in the world. So we're the national aviation regulator, and I work in the safety part of the business, which actually is the largest part. My specialization is basically heliports. I'm kind of the go-to man for heliports. So picture uh, an installation in the middle of the North Sea in international waters somewhere with the heli deck stuck on the top there. That's kind of like my bread and butter day business, or driving over uh, the top of Racecourse Hill into Brighton, and as you go down towards the marina and look right towards the Royal Sussex Hospital there, and you see the Thomas Kemp Tower, and on top of the Thomas Kemp Tower uh, is, is, is a heliport. 
hopefully soon to be opened, actually. Um, anyway, so that's what I do by day. And every nation has a civil aviation authority or administration. And the Bible says that over one official, there's always a higher official. And in our case, the higher official is the United Nations organisation called the Civil Aviation... Uh, sorry, the International Civil Aviation Organisation. UK is a big player. We're well represented in Montreal at the ICAO. And in 2006, when my boss was on the cusp of retirement, he called me into the office and he said, Kevin, I'm currently the UK member of the Heliport Design Working Group. I'd like you to take over from me. And I thought, great, that's a real privilege and not totally unexpected as you're about to retire. And then he said to me, oh, I'm also the chairman of the group, so I want you to come on to the group, simultaneously be the member and the chairman of the group at the same time. At that moment, I took a bit of a gulp and thought, oh, I'm not really sure I'm, I'm up to that. Uh, it's rather like Daniel. Do you remember Daniel in chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar commands, not only he wants to know the, um, uh, the interpretation of the dream, but he wants to know the content of the dream as well. I mean, anyone with a sanctified imagination can interpret a dream, but when you've got to, go, you've got to say what it is as well, it, it feels like uh, you know, it's up the game. And for me, it really felt like it had up the game. But having just given up that chairmanship just a couple of months ago, literally, all these years on, I realise now as I look back and see the hand of God, I've mentioned the hand of God even earlier than I thought I would, seeing the hand of God in my life and what he, what, he, what he did for me at that point, just pushing me out gently and saying, come on, Kevin, I'm your faithful creator. You can do this, son. You can do this, son. And he pushes you out and uh, then suddenly you think, boy, that was kind of like the icing on the cake, really. So let's be expectant for that sort of thing. And because he's a faithful creator, it means A, he's faithful, and B, it means he created you and I, so he knows what we can take and what we can endure, whatever we might be going through, if it's a blessing, or indeed if we right, feel like we're right on the back foot. Anyway, our job was to produce standards for the 193 nation states. Uh, we work on three to four year work cycles. Excuse me a second. Um, three to four year work cycles. The work is in English, fortunately, because it's about the only language I've got any kind of grasp of. Uh, and when the proposals are mature, they're translated into the five ICAO languages, which are French, Spanish, Arabic, Russian, and Chinese. And then they go forward for scrutiny with the Air Navigation Commission, which all sounds very posh. And once they're accepted, they go out to the 193 uh, member states in what's called a state letter. So a big state letter with this you know, United Nations emblem on it and everything. And once the 193 states have had a chance to comment, the chair of the working group then works with the Internal Secretariat to disseminate the comments and to provide any responses. And then the process is completed with comments responses going back to the 193 states before they're finally adopted as new global standards. And you know, when you see that state letter going out with your work on it, and you see this grid of 193 states uh, and a load of uh, international organisations as well, it makes you kind of feel like the nations of the world have suddenly become a little bit smaller. Suddenly, they're, they're slightly accessible, and dare I say it, they're even influenceable as well. But what about God? What does it say about God? In verse 15 of Isaiah 40, it says, Surely the nations of the world are like a drop in a bucket. I was going to bring a prop in today. I was going to bring a bucket. 
and I was going to bring a pipette and I was going to drop a drop of water from the pipette into the bucket, turn the bucket over and you'd have all gone, yeah, what was that all about? Because you wouldn't have seen anything, even with our fancy ultra-high-definition cameras at the back. You know, you're just not going, to, you're not going to pick all that kind of stuff up, are you? And that's what the nations are in comparison to God. They're just a drop in a bucket. They're just regarded, it says, as dust on the scales. And I thought about this. I mean, scales in 730 BC, when um, Isaiah was prophesying this, would not have been of the same precision as they are today. So, again, they diddly squat. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Nothing. And then in verse 17, it says, Before him, all the nations are nothing. They're nothing. Are we getting the message? <laughs> They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing just want to pick up on that where it says worthless it doesn't mean we're not worth anything in the sight of God Jesus died for the nations Jesus died for the world because God so loved the world what Isaiah is trying to get over here in terms of nothing is that in in our size and our influence we just amount to nothing or as one version puts it meaningless that's comparison number two comparison number three I've called man as creator craftsman comparing God to a dumb idol. In a couple of weeks' time, William Kay is going to be here as part of this series. I'm excited about that. He's going to be speaking about God, creator and craftsman. Well, I'm just going to say a few words about man as creator and craftsman this morning. And I've brought in a pair of binoculars just to highlight these things. We all know what binoculars do. You normally have to take your glasses off. But as you look to the back of the auditorium, suddenly everything becomes very, very large and very, very in focus and much bigger than it is in reality. But if I turn the binoculars round and look through the wrong end, then we get the complete reverse, and I now can barely see the screen at the back or the cameraman because uh, I've just now reduced everything to almost nothing. And that's the purpose, of course, isn't it? And depending on which end we view things for changes our perspective on things dramatically. You know, it provides a picture of the Christian life where you're either moving closer to God or you're falling back from him. You're what Hebrews 2 talks about. You're drifting further away from him. You see, the Christian life is never something that's static. You know, it's true to say that we're all guilty of carrying a vision of God, which is far too small. But when we're slipping back, that's the first thing that goes. Our vision of God essentially diminishes. It reminds us of the story of the children of Israel when they were in the promised, uh, spying out sorry, the promised land in Numbers 13 and 14. They were guilty of succumbing to a vision of God that was far too small. And consequently, they had a vision of the nations opposing them, which was too big. As a result, they missed their destiny in God when they believed the testimony of those ten disbelieving spies, and they ended up wandering around the desert aimlessly for another 40 years. In fact, Scripture records how the ten spies said of the people that lived in the land, Oh, they're powerful. Oh, their cities are fortified. Oh, they're very large. All the people we saw there were of great size, they say. You see, the ten saw great men and women opposing them. Caleb and Joshua, on the other hand, saw their great God fully behind them. And they said, come on, we can do this. We can take the land. Joshua and Caleb were looking at God through the right end of the binoculars, while the rest of the people were looking at their circumstances in that way, and then looking at God through the wrong end. God had somehow become 
small in their hearts and minds. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says that it's my opinion that the Christian conception of God is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. He goes on to say the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So when the people of God were delivered from the tyranny of Pharaoh, when they were freed, you'll remember, from that slavery in Egypt after Yahweh had parted the Red Sea, the people sang the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. The song goes on. It's a fabulous song, isn't it? Uh, Terry writes a whole chapter in his book about it. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? But then we read on through the book of Exodus, and by the time we get to the 32nd chapter, there's been all this supernatural activity, naturally supernatural, and the acts of God, like the provision of manna, the provision of quail, um, pillars of cloud to guide them by day, pillars of fire by night. When Moses was delayed on the mountain, the people said to Aaron, I mean, incredibly, make us gods who shall go before us. And having received the gold from their hand, Aaron fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know, scripture paints a picture of a God who's so great that any attempt to box him up is not only completely unworthy of his majesty, but actually it's utterly pathetic as well, which I think is the point of verse 19 and 20, where uh, Isaiah says, as for an idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. I mean, how pathetic is that? An idol that can't even stand on its own two feet. Tozer's right on the money, I think, when he says the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. You know, it may be impossible, and I think it is, for us to grasp how big, how great our God is, but at least let's be, not be guilty of looking through the wrong end of the binoculars. You know, when we come together as a church, that's one of our callings, to magnify the Lord together, to acknowledge his greatness which may well be too much for us to comprehend, for us to fathom, to get our hearts and minds round. But we need to pursue such a corporate revelation of his greatness anyway, week by week. So we come to comparison number four, my final comparison. This is where it gets wild and wacky. I've called this God and the universe. To whom then, this is verse 25 and 6, to whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. And it occurred to me that there's an obvious connection between idols and stars, inasmuch as pagan hearts foolishly create the one and then ignorantly worship the other. In Israel's day, without all the light pollution that we experience in our day and age, Probably around about 5,000 stars would have been visible to the naked eye at night. And it would have been the naked eye, of course, because we had no telescopes and binoculars in those days. 
Today, with the benefit of modern astronomy, we know that there are many, 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 many more stars in the universe. One note I read on this verse pointed out that there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. And when multiplied by the 125 billion galaxies in the universe, the total number of stars is estimated to be... It's what we do, isn't it, when we have a big figure come up on the screen? One times 10 to the power of 22. You didn't know you're going to get a maths lesson this morning. Or 10 billion trillions. I mean, it's a crazy number. It, it was not even really worth considering or, or unpacking. It's just astonishing also that God doesn't just count the stars, but he calls them each by name, ensuring that not one of them is missing. This is too much for my finite mind to understand. It's awesome, an awesome and majestic God that we serve. Now imagine David's lying on a hillside at night and he's writing Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In comparison to the glory of the night sky, which really is only the reflected glory of God, we might be tempted to feel really small, perhaps even forgotten. And you know, there's an element in which those fears are understandable, because in the kind of mass world that we live in now, it's true really, isn't it, that God, uh, sorry, that big is not always beautiful in human terms. So I want to draw some conclusions on all this. And I want to conclude first, which kind of is quite evident, I hope, from what I've said, that God is exceedingly great. But I want to build into that the fact that he's also exceedingly good. Because it's one thing he's exceedingly great, but if he's not exceedingly good, it's not too helpful. So verse 27 says, so this is the very next verse to the one we've just read. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. I mean, surely such a great God as we've been speaking about this morning cannot forget even one of his people, can he? I mean, it's illogical to think that he could forget us if he can regulate the universe and the stars like that. But, you know, I think it is understandable that against the greatness of God, we can feel very small. I mean, have you ever felt disregarded by God? I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've been in a moment of crisis and you've thought to yourself, where is God in all this mess? I need him like now. You know, it doesn't feel like you're out there, Lord. It doesn't feel like you're going to come through for me on this one. You know, even if you've not verbalised that, you've surely said in your heart, like uh, this passage here, my cause is disregarded by my God. I mean, in fact, another translation says, the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. You ever felt like what I'm going through at the moment? That's escaped the notice of my God. You know, I think there's nothing wrong with feeling very small. In fact, it's healthy to remember we're but dust. Isaiah reminds us of that, not once, but twice in chapter 40, verses 6 to 8 and 22 to 24. But what we need to keep constantly in mind is that compared to our great God, we are very small. But here's the good news. We're not insignificant because we have a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus said that not one sparrow falls to the ground without the knowledge of your Heavenly Father. Know then, Jesus goes on, you're worth more, more, much more than many sparrows. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. 
I don't want to get into hairs. We've done that in previous weeks. We've probably played that joke out. Let's go back to hands. The hand of God, the first picture we looked at in our journey this morning to try to fathom the greatness of God. If you read on another few chapters in Isaiah's brilliant prophecy and you get to chapter 49, you come to another similar complaint to the one we've just read. So 49 verse 14 says, Zion, and remember these are corporate complaints by the way, we take them as individuals and rightly we can do that, but it's also a corporate thing. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And you know, what, what is our Heavenly Father's response to that? And I like the response because it brings out some of the motherly qualities in the Godhead as well. And I like that. Verse 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you, says God. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are always before me. I was reminded this father-mother stuff, a verse in the Psalms, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. You know, we started with a picture of God's hands sort of cupped and then stretched out, and we finished looking deep into those palms again, um, which uh, we will do. I mean, these are the hands that contain the waters. These are the hands that stretch out the heavens, the hands that flung stars into space, the hands that hold the universe all the time in perfect tension. They've got your name and my name inscribed on them. I wonder if the band wants to come forward. Just in conclusion, and when we come into the New Testament, we remember how our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. This is how Isaiah starts his prophecy in the 53rd chapter, that Jesus, God's incarnate Son, forever has the marks of the crucifixion nails in the palms of his hands and in his feet as a continual reminder to God the Father that our sins have been paid in full and eternally. It's unthinkable then that God the Father should ever forget even one of his children. God will never leave us nor forsake us. We've never been forsaken, we never will be forsaken because on the cross Jesus was forsaken when he cried out, my God, My God, why have you forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned me? Let me just finish with one verse from uh, Romans chapter 8, which many commentators say is the high peak of the New Testament, so I suppose the high peak of the Bible. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, the greatness and the goodness of God. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to this message from the King's Church, Mid-Sussex. To connect with us online, visit tkc.org.uk. We hope you'll join us again soon.